It's a blessing to be here this morning. This even, uh, having watched that, I've changed my theology of missions. I was able to go uh, Friday night to the last night of the VBS. And you know, I think a couple weeks ago, I would have said, uh, our most difficult mission field is Kazakhstan. And we go to Kazakhstan, we're trying to reach these people with the gospel. And I would have said the second most difficult place is the Czech Republic. And you guys know where I'm going with this. Then I would have said, you know, third most difficult place is Orange County. Okay, my theology's changed. Kazakhstan is the easiest place because you can't even talk to anybody. You can't share the gospel. You can't talk in English. You know, then you can go to Czech Republic. No, some people can speak English. So you can share the gospel a little more. It gets a little more difficult. And then you do Orange County. And people are able to fully talk. They're, they're able to fully uh, argue with you. And you have these long, drawn-out conversations. But the hardest ministry is VBS. Because you have to be able to speak to munchkins. You have to be able to sit there. You're trying to preach the gospel. Johnny's pulling Susie's hair. You're, you know, telling this little guy to repent. But uh, it was a real blessing to be there, as you said. And I was just reminded again of what Paul wrote to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood... You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, Ephesians tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. I think that we're becoming more convinced that even as we teach all the Bible to children, they're able to comprehend the truth. And at any time in God's sovereignty, when He would choose and He would will so, He can use the truths of His Word to convert all these youths to himself, whether he uses that when they're five, or whether he uses that when they're 30, the Word of God's living and active. It's a sword of the Spirit. And by His grace, He will use that in their lives. And that's this morning, that's our hope this morning, right? As we hear the Word of God, it's a sword of the Spirit that it will work through His power actively in our lives, conforming us to Christ. And so with that, I just ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Will you stand with me? Colossians chapter 3. We'll read together uh, verses 1 through uh, 11. Paul writes, Therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, 
but Christ is all and in all. Lord, we cry out to you this morning that you would unfold your word because it gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And Lord, you would unfold your word to us because as you are more clearly explained and revealed, our hearts are able to worship you more correctly. Our minds are able to perceive and conceive the truth of who you are. And that if we have a Christ made with our own thinking and our own understanding, all we have is an idol. And so we continue to need to understand to behold the truth, the riches of Jesus Christ. And Lord, knowing that the impact of understanding who you are will completely impact the way we live our lives, the way we view our own sin, the way we view the lost. And so we ask you this morning that you would help us to understand the word. I cry out to you for mercy. Oh Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. Lord, I pray that you would help me make it clear in the way I ought to speak. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminates us the truth of your word. And we pray that you would be glorified this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I spent the majority of my time uh, preparing a sermon, which I won't preach to you this morning. But I believe that uh, Colossians is equally important. And uh, the last time I was here, I was able to deliver Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. And if you remember there in that message, that Paul gave to us how to live a resurrected life. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 really uh, tells believers who were once dead in the world, they were hostile, engaged in evil deeds. But through the sovereignty of God, raised up, saved by grace. And so Paul tells Christians how to live a resurrected life. And in uh, verses 1 through 4, we looked at two precepts to the saints and two promises in the Savior. The two precepts were the first was seek the things above. And the second was set your mind on the things above. And then we looked at the two promises, two promises in the Savior. The first was you're, you're hidden in Christ, and the second is you will be revealed with Christ. You will be revealed with Christ. And it's really that last promise this morning, that last promise there in verse 4, that when Christ returns and He's revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. It's that promise there, that when He returns, He will utterly purify us of all of our sin, of all that remains of ungodliness in us. And it's really that last promise that the rest of the chapter flows out of. So let me refresh you a little bit this morning. Verse 4. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So remember, we call this the when and then verse. When Christ returns, then we will be sanctified will be glorified. And so we spoke how this verse really speaks of the pinnacle, the pinnacle of our sanctification. That at the return of Christ, all of our sin will be removed. And First John, First John 3, verses 2 through 3, John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. And so John tells us when Christ appears and we see Him and we behold His glory, woof, utter sanctification. 
in which the Bible speaks of is glorification. Because what's going to happen is that all the world is going to behold Jesus Christ in His full glory. Remember we spoke of that? Jesus is going to appear in His full glory. Revelation gives us that picture. His full brightness, clothed in white. Unbelievers are going to cry out for the rocks to fall upon them. Then rather than behold and stand before the Lamb of God. And really, Jesus Christ, His glory and His holiness will purge unbelievers of their sin. Now, we spoke of the sun. Remember the sun? That the outside of the sun, it's 10,000 degrees. And I remember reading that, I was a little disappointed. But then the science tells us that the inside, the core of the sun is 27 million degrees. That's very hot. That is not even close to the intensity of Jesus Christ. That does not pale in comparison to the glory of our risen Lord when He returns. You know, a few weeks ago, Jason preached on the end of the world. In Second Peter, he preached on Second Peter. And chapter 3, verse 10 says, but, but, he, but in the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And I, I like to believe that when Christ returns, His glory is what is going to melt away the world with its intense heat. It's the presence of Jesus Christ and His glory that will bring the world to its end and will utterly purge and bring in the new world, His new creation. And so really this morning, there's two options. There's two things that will, will happen when Christ returns, the saints will be purified or the unbelievers will be consumed. And so that's what all these missions teams are declaring. That either you can pay for your sin for all of eternity or Christ can pay it for you and you can be prepared for His return. That when He, when he returns, you can stand before Him and by His grace, through some supernatural transformation, some metaphysical change, being purged of your sin, you can stand before the glory of God and not be consumed forever. But you can worship Him. And so this morning, this morning we want to be reminded of our glorification through verse 4. Because that's what's going to happen when Christ returns. Let me give you just a definition. What, is, what does glorification mean? Toss that word around a few times this morning. Let me give you the textbook definition of glorification. Glorification is the last stage in the process of salvation, namely the resurrection or transformation of the body at the second coming of Jesus Christ and the entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. In glorification, believers attain complete conformity to the image and likeness of the glorified Christ and are freed from both physical and spiritual defect. Glorification ensures that believers will never again experience bodily decay, death or illness, and will never again struggle with sin. Oh, that's a blessed hope. That's a blessed hope that we will never again struggle with sin. There will never be the need again to confess sin. There will never uh, again be the struggle of me making my wife cry because of my harsh words. There will never again be the struggle with temptation. 
And the list goes on and on because of Christ's return. When we're glorified and purged and we'll worship Him in holiness, there will never again be a Sunday when we wake up with hard hearts, struggling, not wanting to worship our Lord and Savior. But we will enter continually the presence of the Lord with joy, with a constant passion to worship Him. And so you remember the real application of that verse. When Christ returns, that is our greatest, that's the pinnacle of our sanctification. So we ask the question, do you long for the return of Christ? Because if you long for your sanctification, if you long to be purged of your sin, the greatest means is His return. If you long for sanctification, you must long for His return. And we left with that question. If you don't long for His return, then you don't long for your sanctification. And then you're not really probably living a holy life. And so I ask you this morning, do you long for His return? Do you long to be purged and to be stand prepared wholly for Him? But I think that Paul gives us a greater application. Paul gives us a greater test to know if we, if we really long for our sanctification. How do I know if I really long for the return of Christ? How do I know if I really long for the return of Christ? And First John tells us, He who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself. And Paul gives us very similar. In verse 4, he tells us, When Christ returns, we will be revealed. How do I know if I long for that? Verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. And that really is the key this morning. Do you long for the return of Christ? Well, Paul will answer that question for us, and you will be able to answer it at the end. This morning I really want to look at this verse. The true test of our longing for the return of Christ is living a holy life is putting to death sin. And so Colossians 3, really 5-7 through 7 is what we'll look at this morning. Three principles that are to be lived out in light of our future glorification. Three principles that will reveal to, to us this morning whether we really believe Christ is coming back. Three principles which when heeded give us assurance that we will be glorified at the return of Christ instead of petrified. That we will be sanctified instead of terrified, that we will be full of joy, instead of full of fear. And so the first principle is very simple. Put to death your members. Put to death your members. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Put to death your members. And there we see that again, that important word, therefore. Therefore, pointing back to what we just looked at, Consequent to the return of Christ, or since Christ is going to return, put to death your members. Let me just read to you a few other versions real quickly. The NIV says, put to death. Put to death your members. The King James Version says, mortify therefore your members which are on the earth. The ESV says, put to death. And I think that the NES is inadequate. It says, therefore, consider your members. But the Greek word, nekrosate, you guys recognize the word nekros, means death, means dead. And the verb translated means to kill, to make dead, 
to put to death, to slay, to deprive of power, to destroy of strength. It's a command. The verb is the imperative. So let's review our Greek this morning. Right? I had to review it. I'll review it with you. Let's review some Greek. All right? The easiest way to explain this is just to call it an imperative. It's called a command, right? You need to do something. But in the Greek, the Greek, there's two kinds of imperatives. There's a present imperative, and there's an aorist imperative. You could just say there's a, a present command and an aorist command. So, present imperatives. Uh, some real simple examples. What we just looked at in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Present imperative, keep seeking the things above, or set your mind on the things above. That's a present imperative. A present imperative just means that it's a habitual command. It's something that characterizes your life. It's something that you always habitually, continuously do. It's characterized of who you are and what you are to do. So when Paul says, keep seeking the things above, he means make this a habit of your life. Brothers and sisters, pursue Christ the rest of your life. When I was uh, in sixth grade, I went to Texas, I think for three weeks. Parents put me on a plane with my best friend, went down to Texas, stayed on a ranch for three weeks. Well, I was with my friend, and his grandparents lived on this ranch, <clears throat> his house. You got all the insects, all the bugs. Well, they said, Marcus, every night before you go to bed, you need to pull the sheets back and check for scorpions, because scorpions will crawl in between your sheets. Every morning you get up, you need to check your shoes because at night the scorpions will crawl into your shoes. Well, for 2.5 weeks, every night, I had pulled my covers back and checked for scorpions. But you know what? 2.5 weeks isn't good enough. Because in the middle of the last week, I got lazy, didn't check the covers, got in bed, felt something crawling on my leg, jumped out of bed, and I was stung by a scorpion. Because I didn't heed the present imperative. Every night, check Every night, Marcus, check your bed for scorpions. Oh, there's no scorpion in there. It's okay. That's a present imperative. But the other imperative is the aorist imperative. This is the urgent command to do something immediately. It's not to wait. It's not even about habit. It's just about the emergency to do something. Another silly story. I don't remember how what it was. The little kid, my brother and I got into our car, yellow Honda, uh, yellow Toyota Corolla. We're in the car. Mom and Dad are inside. We're playing driving. I put the car in neutral. And then somehow we figure out how to put the e-brake down. We have a little slope incline on our driveway. The car starts backing up. So I jump out of the car. My brother Brooks, he's in the car. He thinks we're going for a drive. The car's rolling into the street. I get out and I'm trying to hold the car. I'm trying to keep the car in the driveway and I'm screaming for help, screaming for mom. And that was an aorist imperative, trying out for her to come out immediately before the car rolls over me. <laughs> and that is exactly what Paul has given us this morning. Paul here, he gives us the aorist imperative here. Put to death. Put to death the members Kill, destroy, execute, eradicate sin from your life. It's an urgent command because of its peril, because of its deadliness. And so Paul begins to enunciate, what are we to put to death? And the Bible is very clear, it's very specific. 
the Bible makes us feel very uncomfortable because it doesn't leave anything hidden. It doesn't leave us to ponder, well, what should I put to death? What is Paul's command here? He tells us very clearly, put to death your members. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And he really uses somewhat of a metonym. It's not that immorality and impurity things that are members themselves, but it's the things that our members do. It's the things that apart from regeneration, apart from being born again, that the world uses their lives to do. Immorality, impurity. And so really I think Paul's list is very specific. He really begins with the out, the outward, the external manifestation of sin. He starts with the externals, but he works his way into the heart. Let's just briefly look at this list here. Paul says, first, immorality. Destroy immorality. The Greek words, porneia. You don't know the word, clearly, porneia. We get the word pornography. Illicit, unlawful sexual intercourse. That is idolatry, premarital sex, homosexuality. It's very simply anything that is sexual outside the confines of marriage. That's immorality. It's just plain old physical wickedness. And we could I'll proceed here. We could do a whole other message on this. We'll move on. Because he moves closer to the source. Impurity. Impurity, this is moral uncleanness. You know, I think that he gets more specific. This is for those who would say, Paul, you know, Christ, I'm not living in immorality. But the Bible says there is to be no moral uncleanness. There is not to be even any a horsing around. Even horsing around with someone who's not your wife or your husband. And this would also speak of any self-gratification to please self. Paul says that is to be put to death. And he moves on to the, to even towards the inner man. Passion. Passion. Passion, this is the sexual desires let loose in one's body. That's passion. And you know, it goes back to the power of the mind. The power of the mind. You know, what we think on is what we do. What we think on really even controls our physical body. Let's think of something. Uh, how about when someone dies? When someone dies, it is not just a, an idea in your mind. When a loved person passes away, the, the idea, the understanding that you've lost a loved one affects your entire life. You weep and you mourn and your body is drained away of strength and your heart hurts because the mind affects your body. And it's the same with passion. When your mind is set on ungodliness and your mind is set on the things of the world, passion runs and takes a rampart over your body. And the world wants to say, oh, it's hormones. Oh, it's hormones. They're just kids. Or I can't control myself. It's chemicals. No. It's passion. It's because your mind is set upon those things and your body is affected by what your mind meditates on. 
And when a person has their mind set on sexual fantasies and their mind is filled with perversion, it results in an intense desire to sin. It results in an intense desire to rebel against the commands of Scripture. That's passion. And that's why Paul says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Because if you have a mind set on the things on the earth, you will live and carry out the things of the earth. And he doesn't finish there. He says, evil desire. This is the source of all of the above. Evil desire. Just the internal caverns of the heart. Ephesians 2.3 tells us that before we were saved, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. It's the mind. It's the mind where we meditate on these passions and then they affect the body. And then lastly, interestingly, greed. Look what he says there. Greed. And greed which amounts to idolatry. And it's not just talking about money. Greed is simply uh, longing, hungering, seeking after, desiring for what cannot be yours. And what is not meant to be yours. That's greed. We associate it with money. Certainly. But it goes to whatever. And it's interesting that he says greed, which amounts to idolatry. You know, and idolatry goes back to setting something other than God upon the throne. And men are guilty of idolatry. Men are guilty of making a God in their own image. Because they don't like the God of Scripture. Why? Because the God of Scripture has made ordinances and commands that don't conform with what men like. And so what men do is they make their own God. And if you make your own God, then you, then you have to make up His laws. And if you make up your own God, you make laws according to that God that really are the kind of things that you like. And so you make up a God, you make up the laws, and then you're able to live out those laws. You're able to do the things that you always want to do because you have your own God. And so then you're able to, to have the things and to justify it. And Paul says that is idolatry. A mind consumed with the things of the world. What your mind is set on, that's worship. What your mind longs for, that's worship. Christians worship God because they love Him. Because they long for Him. Because He's their joy, their delight. But unbelievers, they worship the things of the world. The God of this world. He's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And they love Him. Because He allows them to do the things they want to do. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 says, or do, not, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor vilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul says, put to death your members. Put them to death. Our bodies are to be used for holy things. For God. And we need to see, in a sense, our, our members, we need to see our bodies as instruments of righteousness. As instruments that are now able to serve the Lord. You know, in the hospital, I use tools. And a tool that's a surgical instrument that's dropped upon the floor, it's made unclean. You cannot use it. 
if you use a scalpel that's uh, dirty, contaminated, it will cause infectious disease in that person. It can kill them. You know, the, the Bible speaks similarly. 2 Timothy 2.21 says that we need to be vessels that are for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Righteousness means preparation. Righteousness means usefulness to God. Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life. When you live a righteous life, when you're walking with the Lord in holiness, then you're able, you're useful. And it just brings us back to the, the contradiction of living for Christ and yet living in sin. How can the same hand that turns the Word of God be the same hand that would look at pornography? How can the same tongue that speaks forth praises to God be the same tongue that would speak forth uh, painful words, lies? And we can go on and on. How can the same eyes that are used to read God's Word be used for the things of unholiness? And we need to put to death the things of the flesh you need to put to death your members. You know, and this is the incredible thing this morning. You know, as a, as a, a fellow saint, yet as one who's being sanctified, I have my own struggles. You know, struggling with sin, struggling with pride, struggling with temptation, yet clinging to Christ. And yet, He knows my sin. He knows my struggles. He knows yours as well. He knows what things that no one else knows. And He's urging you this morning to put them to death. And there is such a point where you need to, to question. Perhaps you're here this morning, you don't truly know Christ. Your life reflects that you don't. Maybe others think you do. Others think that you're a Christian, that you're a good person, but inside you know you're not living for Christ. I'll quote to you again uh, what Thomas Watson said. Preacher Thomas Watson said, What good will it do you in hell for others to think you have gone to heaven. What good will it do you in hell for others to think you have gone to heaven? Put to death your members this morning. Put to death those things that will destroy your soul. Christians are no longer slaves to sin. We are freed from it. We are able to put it to death. So in light of Christ's return, in light of our future glorification... Put your sin to death. That's the first principle. But the second principle is perceive the coming wrath of God. Perceive the coming wrath of God. Verse 6. That list that Paul gives us, those sinful things. Why we need to stop them? Because of the coming wrath of God. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. God's Word makes it real clear. Why we do not want to be those who practice such things. Because God's wrath is coming. And we can go through verse after verse, looking at God's judgment, looking at what's going to happen to the wicked. Let me ask you this question first. Do you believe that God's wrath is coming? Do you believe that at Christ's return, it's glorification for the saints, but judgment for the sinners, for the lost? Do you believe that Christ is returning? The first way we prove we believe this is simply obedience. We just looked at that. Putting to death. But I want to touch on the second principle here. If we believe that the wrath of God is coming, then we should be those that are sharing the gospel. Very simply. 
If we believe God's wrath is coming, we're those who are sharing the gospel. The doctrine of eternal punishment is not only to encourage sinners to repent, it's to stoke the fire of evangelism, that Christians would get off their pillows of comfort and go out and labor for the salvation of the lost. So let me ask you again, do you believe the wrath of God is coming? Do you believe Isaiah 33, verse 14? It says, Sinners are in Zion, they're terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? That's the cries of the wicked, the return of, of Yahweh. How about 2 Thessalonians 1.9? It speaks of the unrighteous and the wicked. It says, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Do you believe that? We talk about having faith in Christ, having faith in God. Do you have faith in hell? Belief means faith. And faith without works is dead. Do you have faith in hell? We know James very clearly. James says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. How do you show you have faith in hell? Very simply, sharing the gospel. You're sharing the gospel. You're seeking to turn sinners from God's wrath and turn them to His forgiveness, His righteousness. Turn them to repentance. And it really leads us at this point that you cannot believe that Jesus is going to remove all your sins and perfect you and yet fail to be broken for the lost. You cannot ardently believe that Christ, when He returns, is going to purge you of your sins and yet not believe that His return is going to judge the wicked. And so really it means that directly coinciding with our belief in His return for our glorification is His judgment. And we need to be those that are preaching the gospel. Do you have compassion for the lost? Do you have compassion for those that don't know Christ? Are you proving that you believe in God's return? And I would ask you again, you know, these questions are somewhat unintimidating in here. And they're very difficult even to, to really honestly answer. Because we would all definitely say, yes, I believe in these doctrines. But it, it has to be more than nodding of the head this morning. It has to be that we, when we leave, that our hearts are broken for those that don't know Christ. And it, it doesn't mean do we believe this morning, just here, but it means when we go home and... Day after day, we live next to neighbors who don't know Jesus. Day after day, we go to work, and we work with people who don't know Christ. Or we have family that doesn't know Jesus. Or we have children. The question doesn't need to be asked now. That's when it needs to be asked. You know, ask yourself next time you're with an unbeliever, next time you're riding the bus to work, the next time you have an opportunity to speak with an unbeliever, ask yourself that question right now. Marcus, do I believe the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience? That's when we need to ask the question. Do you believe that? You know, it's second hour. We're going to have an opportunity to share about Orange County team. What a blessing. What a blessing it was. And yet, you know what? 
to, to get excited really about one week isn't going to cut it. You know, if after one week, 20 men and women share the gospel and go back to living a normal life like we lived beforehand, it's not going to be well done, good and faithful servant because we did it for one week. It has to be a life that's lived in belief every day. Belief in Christ's return for our good. Belief in Christ's return for judgment. I need to be those that are constantly preaching the gospel. And that is the proof. That is the proof that we believe that He's returning. And so, we leave this point to prove that we believe in God's return. But lastly, Paul tells us, in light of uh, Christ's return, we need to ponder our testimony. Verse 7. God's wrath is coming upon those who live, according to verse 5. Verse 7 says, And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. And so Paul here reminds the Colossians that those who are born again have a testimony. They have a testimony. A testimony is really it's your life story about how Jesus Christ worked in your life and you're no longer a slave to sin. That you have been freed. It's a, a testimony is you're describing how you used to love sin. How you used to love unrighteousness. How you used to love disobedience. And yet there came this point maybe as your conscience was working. The Holy Spirit worked upon you. And your guilt was heavy. And you couldn't stop sinning because you were a slave. That God caused you to be born again. All believers have a testimony. And so Paul reminds us this morning to reflect upon our testimony. That saints, if, if you're struggling with these things, if you're struggling with uh, verse 6, verse 5, then we need to remind ourselves of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You know, a few years ago, uh, Amy and I, when we were in Czech Republic, we had an opportunity to go to Auschwitz and to visit the concentration camp there. And you go there, and you guys have all seen, uh, I'm sure, on television, footage, stories, interviews. And you go there and you see pictures. You see the pictures that uh, the Allied forces took, the Americans, soldiers, the Russian uh, forces that came upon these camps beholding these prisoners in these concentration camps. They're gone, they're skinny, uh, limbs, limbs are missing, they look like zombies, and then they're released, they're freed. They're freed from Auschwitz, they're freed from, I think, what you can almost rightly call hell on earth. And then you, want, you listen to the interviews of what people went through. The gas chambers, we can go on and on about the horrors of, of World War II. You, know, you will never, ever hear a Jew say, I wish I could go back to Auschwitz. I wish I could go back to that camp. I wish I could go back to my torture. I wish I could go back to my enslavement. I wish I could go back to winters, working in, in the cold with no shoes, short sleeves. I wish I could go back to torture and torment. And that's the picture of someone who would return back to their sin. Returning back to their slave master. 
Returning back to the one who held you captive. Returning to sin. Returning back to these things. Is that returning back to a concentration camp. And so Paul reminds us, remember your testimony. Remember what Jesus Christ has delivered you from. Remember the consequences of your enslavement. You know, before, before those Jews were in concentration camps, they were living just like everybody else. Their neighbors, their German neighbors, were their friends. Their young children played with their friends. And yet it was those people that turned on the Jews and turned them in. And that's what sin is. It looks like your friend. It looks like it's a, a playmate. But it will lead you to Auschwitz. It will lead you to destruction. You need to remember your testimony. You need to remember what it was like there. You need to turn from it. Let me lastly uh, touch on this this morning. You know, Paul's commands here, Paul's commands to stop sinning and to turn from it is to a believer. It's to a Christian. A Christian can be commanded to turn and stop sinning because he has the power to do so. But friends, this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ, this command to you to try to obey it, it's in vain. Let me explain that. Can you as an unbeliever this morning, can you stop living in immorality? You can. Can you stop stealing? You can, externally. Can you stop lying even? Maybe so. But you know what? You cannot change your heart. You cannot change your inner man. On Saturday night, we were able to share the gospel again. And we explained very clearly that the external manifestation of sin is only the manifestation of the heart, the inward reality. And we just like to explain the simple illustration. Birds fly Fish swim and men sin. Birds fly and chirp and eat worms because their nature is a bird. And a dog, it barks and it chases cats and it chases its tail because it's a dog. And a man, he sins and he lusts and he covets and he lies and he cheats and he steals because his, his nature is sinful. And a dog, it can learn to, to meow, it can learn to purr. Uh, in Universal Studios, we saw a monkey in a diaper doing sign language, acting like a person, but you know what? It was still a monkey. And a a person, he can learn to do righteous things. He can learn to stop doing things externally. But inside his heart's still corrupt. Inside he's still a sinner because he cannot change himself. And if this morning you you would try to turn from your sin and you would try to stop sin, apart from trusting in Christ, it's all in vain. Because not only can you not change your inner nature, not only can you not change who you are, but you still have to pay for what you've already done. When we ask the question again, someone who commits murder, how long are they a murderer? Forever. If, if someone rapes someone, how long are they a rapist? Forever. If someone lies, how long are they a liar? Forever. If someone sins, how long are they a sinner? Forever. The, the question isn't just, how can I stop sinning? The question this morning, if you don't know Christ, is how can I be forgiven of what I've already done? And the answer is simply in Christ. In Jesus Christ, 
alone is forgiveness. In Christ alone is the power to change your corrupt nature, your corrupt heart. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You know, Paul even said in Philippians 3, he was a righteous man. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. To the T. I believe the Apostle Paul, he had the entire Old Testament memorized. He had the entire Bible memorized. But you know what? He wasn't saved. It wasn't until he repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. Because he could do the externals. But he couldn't change his own heart. But Christ Jesus says, if a man be born again, then he can inherit the kingdom of heaven. If a man trusts in me, Christ says, I am sufficient. I alone am able to save and to cleanse and to impart new life. And that's really the call this morning. Do not miss the point. Apart from Jesus Christ, maybe you will stop some sins, but you will never change your inner man. And you will still have to pay for everything you've already committed against the Holy God. It's my prayer this morning that for Christians you would cling to Christ, prepare for His return by living a holy life, preaching the gospel to those that know, know Christ. And if you don't know Christ this morning, you would turn, not just from your sin, but you would turn to Jesus. You would turn to Him as Lord and Savior. You would submit to Him, and live for Him, crowd to Him, and He will have mercy upon you. That is how we live for His return. That's the call to live for our future glory. May God strengthen us this morning to live for Him. Let's pray. God, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word. That it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And all creatures are laid bare before You with whom we have to do. Lord, the passage of Your Word is about judgment. That it's Your Word that will pierce and it will reveal everything that is in our hearts. Every thought that was ever thought against You, every motive, every deed is laid bare because the Word of God searches out the nooks and crannies, even the most inner parts of the inner man. And apart from Christ, at your return, there will not be glorification, but there will be judgment. Lord, your word this morning is the aorist imperative, is an urgent command, both to believers and to unbelievers. For believers to, you would strengthen us to embrace Christ and to heed their return. And for unbelievers, O oh Lord, I pray that you would cause them to turn from their sin and Embrace Jesus Christ. That, Lord, that they cannot change their nature. They cannot change their inner man. But they need You to cause them to be born again. God, thank You for Your truth. Thank You for Your Word. God, thank You for again for how You are sanctifying us. That He who has His hope fixed on these things purifies Himself. God, may You again strengthen us. We do thank You so much for Your grace. In your mercy, in your name we pray. Amen.